0: Good morning, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, close your Bibles. You don't hear that as often from ministers. Close those Bibles for a moment. Um, I want to do a quick recap, and then you know what we're going to do, right? Yeah, you're going to show me how well you've memorized. Before they, we do that, we need to send the kids out at the back with Miss Melissa. So if any kids are ready to head off with Miss Melissa, go, go grab her and have her escort you across that gravel drive. Our first week when we began discussing this series, we started out with absolute authority. We talked about how Jesus established that he was the complete and total authority. And this tells us two things. It tells us, first of all, that he has the right to tell us what to do. Secondly, it tells us that he has the capacity to not just speak from authority, but to bestow authority to speak. And so that's what's established in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. Then we talked about our mandatory mission. Our mandatory mission is to make... This is our one thing, the one big thing we are to do in this life, make disciples of all nations. Last week when we got together, we talked about a divine death. Uh, Remember, there was this verb participle that explains how we are to make disciples. And the first of the verb participles we dealt with was baptizing them. That's right, baptizing them. And so baptizing is how we make disciples. Today we're going to be discussing an obligatory obedience, an obedience that we have to engage in. Before we do that, though, it is necessary to test whether or not you guys have actually memorized this passage. (laughs) This this past week uh, in our house, periodically, we'll just start the passage and then try to get everybody to finish it. So I tried to get the boys to start it the other day. And I I said, and Jesus came up to them and he spoke saying, and Colton went, pop quiz! (laughs) Not quite what Jesus said, but essentially what we're doing today, okay? Okay. So we're gonna put up on the screen the passage, get ready, all right I'm gonna read the words that are not underlined. you guys are gonna fill in the rest and came up and spoke to them, saying, "All has been to in and on, go therefore and of all the baptizing them in the "...of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, and lo, I am even to the... Hey, pretty good. Alright, so next week there's going to be no leads on this. We're just going to trot out the whole thing. If you want to know which version this is from, that's the New American Standard. If you don't memorize it from the New American Standard... It's okay, it'll be one big muddled mess of words, so long as you memorize it. That's the important thing. All right, obligatory obedience. Obligatory obedience. What we're looking at is this part of the passage where he says teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. Again, this is a verb participle. This word teaching is actually a present participle, which means this. It means teaching them to obey all I've commanded you, but that's not a one-time thing. It's teaching them and teaching them and teaching them. It is a continual action, continually teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. So this is an ongoing way that we continue to make disciples. Amen? Amen. There are really three aspects to this before we get into it. First of all, there's the teaching. Teaching is imparting of information. We have to show them what to obey. The only way that's going to be learned is through conveying it somehow. We have to teach. The second uh, aspect of this is obedience. Right? We have to do what we're being told, obedience. But then there's also kind of a third aspect that's created with the two, and that is teaching to obey. If we're going to make disciples, we don't just teach and we don't just obey, but we teach people that your role as a disciple is to obey. Does that make sense? Let's first begin by discussing teaching them. And we need to pray before we do that, don't we? Yeah, let's do that. Our Lord and God, our Master, our Teacher, our leader, you, you who gave us instruction, who walked the paths on this earth and showed us what it means to be a disciple. God, I, I'm asking right now that you would again encourage this body, wake up the spirits within us to hear your word. And Father, more than just to hear it, Father, I pray that we would live it, that this would alter who we are at a fundamental level. This changes us for eternity. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room today that this not be a, a passive enterprise of listening. Lord, help us to listen with the intent to take in and to change. We love you, O God. Holy Spirit, speak just now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus is approached at one stage of the game by a Pharisee. And the the guy comes up to him and he says, he's he's a scribe, he's a teacher and a leader in the law. He understands the word well. And he says to Jesus, Teacher, what 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 is the greatest commandment in all Scripture? Jesus responds and he says... Well, the first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Uh, One of the times he's asked this, he says, with all your strength, too, and adds that into the mix. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So love God with all these things, love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes in the ministry, we get in the habit of kind of breaking down these words. So to love the Lord your God with all your mind, what's that mean? all your intellect all your your mental capabilities love the lord your god with all your strength maybe your actions to love the lord your god with all your heart uh, the heart in greek is cardia it's the the physical center of who you are uh, all right so love the lord your god with your physicality Love the Lord your God with all your soul, that is kind of the inner man, that part of you that is being created through the interaction of spirit and body, that part of you that at least in part will go on to heaven, maybe those things. But here's the thing, in the original language, those words are way more mashed up than you might think. Those words actually have a lot of overlap. One of the ways you can translate as soul is as heart. One of the ways you can translate uh, heart is as intellect. All right, so they're actually a whole, these are, these are, they're varied in a sense, but they actually have a lot of overlap with one another. Here's the key of understanding this passage. The key is love. It's not what you're loving with, but the word love as it's used here is, is agape. Agape is the word, the Greek word for love that means a selfless love, a love that promotes other things. So if you approach this passage and your mentality about this passage is, well, I should feel a certain way about God. I should feel good things with my mind. I should feel good things with my heart. I should feel good things with my soul. You've misunderstood the text. The text isn't saying that. The text is, you're bringing your whole self into service and love of God. It is, my mind is going to do what it can to elevate and benefit God. My my heart's going to do what it can to elevate and benefit God. What's really being said here is the whole self must be united in coming before the Lord and saying, whatever you want, whatever you desire, that's what I'm bringing about. That's the kind of love we're talking about. It looks a lot like obedience. So, Jesus, when he brings this message to his people, who, who are the people he's bringing it to? Matthew 28, he's talking to his disciples, right? So it's then to be understood that when we receive the Great Commission, the, those who receive the Great Commission are disciples. We're followers of Jesus Christ, which means we are, we are presently being taught and being trained, and we are being trained to obedience, right? That all makes sense? So how about you, disciple? What are you doing week by week, day by day, to train? What are you doing day by day to train? What are you doing to increase your obedience, your understanding? How are you loving God with your mind, with your heart, with your soul, with your strength? How is that happening in your life? Well, you showed up to church. Give yourself a pat on the back, high fives all around the room, right? Good job. You were doing something. You were you're showing up and you were t- trying to take in. But is, is that all you can do? Is that the best you can do? Do you think that's enough? Mm. Consider the dietary habits of humans and hyenas. (laughs) There's a difference between the two, isn't there? Humans and hyenas, we don't quite eat the same way. One, one can construct a plan. One can work through that plan. One can gather ingredients and mix elements. It can manipulate those elements and expose them to controlled heat. Through these things, the human can build a feast. But what about the hyena? The hyena wanders around and it picks up scraps and it picks at bones. It only finds incidental sustenance. Which does your spiritual life most resemble? Have you set about making a plan for furthering your own discipleship? To increase, to love God with all these aspects of self. I hope that that's the case. Uh, quick commercial. In three weeks, we're going to begin a, uh, a uh, sermon series called Feeding. And we're going to be discussing things that you can do to actively improve your own spiritual growth, to nourish yourself spiritually. Be there. So you're getting instruction, I hope, but what instruction are you giving? Remember a few weeks ago, I talked about being gravy boats for God? And if you weren't with us that week, you're like, what on earth? I'm tempted to just leave that out there and then let you have an aneurysm later today gravy boats for God. A gravy boat is a vessel. It is a vessel that something is poured into, but it is not meant to be the end of what is poured into it. That is meant to be bestowed somewhere else. And that is what is happening with us. As we take in nourishment from God, as we are fed by the Holy Spirit, we are to be a receptacle that is meant to deliver this to others. We are made to teach on some level or another. Now, there's a problem with that. And many of you probably have felt guilt for being in the church for a long time and thinking, maybe I should be teaching. It seems like everybody's pushing me in this direction. When you think about a teacher, what do you think about? A person standing up in front of the classroom, waxing eloquent and gesturing at a whiteboard or you know, flipping through a PowerPoint, maybe, or if you're older, chalkboard. You remember chalkboards? An estimated 73 to 75% of people have a crippling fear of speaking in front of others. It's roughly three out of four of us. The idea of speaking in front of other people absolutely terrifies them. It accounts for nearly 19% of all diagnosed phobias. It actually beats out the fear of death, which is only 16%. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld was talking about this, and, and you know, this is the number one most prevalent fear of the human condition. Jerry Seinfeld was speaking about this, and he said, you know, what this means is that at a funeral, Uh, you'd rather be the guy in the box than the guy giving the eulogy. (laughs) And and that's where most people fall on that issue. However, teaching is not just standing in front of a classroom, waxing eloquent on some topic on which you are an expert. Teaching is imparting knowledge. It's moving people through and past mere understanding to obedience. Obedience. And that takes many forms. Here's something interesting I discovered this week. There are actually 16 different words in the Hebrew and Greek that we translate as teaching. Which means we're missing out on a lot of ideas that are in and behind the text if we don't understand these things. So I'm going to trot out a number of these words for you really quickly. And I want you to just get a sense of how many ways that we actually offer instruction as a body of believers. So in Hebrew, get ready. Hebrew, number one, lamad, to beat. To beat. Some of you are like, oh, I'm suddenly gifted in teaching. <laughs> My kids could tell you. Um, here we meet, Lamad means to beat. It is chastising or disciplining, striking or goading. This word has come to reference training men for war or training them in Torah, all right? It, it, is, it is equipping somebody to be ready to go to war with ideas. Um, To to learn to live life through this conditioning, this spiritual boot camp as it were. And maybe you guys have experienced this. I don't know if you've ever been through sort of a spiritual boot camp where you spend time with other believers fasting and praying and studying and reading. And maybe for six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is, you're just entrenched in the word. That's Lamad. That's what that is. If you discipline your children, you're engaging in Lamad. If you discipline spiritual children you're engaging in Lamad. And what I mean by that is there are those who are in the congregation of believers who need to be corrected. Now, can I just say a brief aside? Children should not discipline children. That's very inappropriate. In this respect, only mature believers should actually be the ones who are doing the spiritual disciplining within the church. So, quick synopsis there. How about another word? Yara. Yara means to cast. This has the idea of sowing or scattering seed. Um, And this is how the law is described. The giving of the law is described as sowing seed. So when God is teaching the law, it's like they're throwing seed out there and just seeing what will take root and what will grow. This, by the way, would describe an individual who likes to just publicly set out some theological ideas. If you're the type of person who leaves the line at Kroger's and says, may the living God bless you, you are engaging in yada. You're casting out some idea that may or may not take root, but it is a spiritual idea nonetheless. It's teaching. The third category I want to mention here is ben, not B-E-N, B-I-N. It means to separate, to exercise discernment. A lot of you in this congregation have done this. Uh, It is distinguishing, distinguishing things, creating categories to better understand things. not a mere gathering in of knowledge, but it's actually categorizing and organizing knowledge. If you've ever taught children, you have engaged in ben. You've taken complex ideas and you've broken them down into parts that can be understood and digested. That is teaching. Another category is Sakal, to be wise. This is to look at, to examine, to behold, or to view. To bring something into someone's vision. To be wise is to go to somebody who maybe doesn't understand the Scriptures and ask them a penetrating question that gets them to move from shallowness to a little bit more depth. Think of it as taking a, a biblical idea and holding it up in front of somebody and going, what do you make of this? All right, now, this is easy for any of us to do. It, it starts as simply as this. How do you feel about, and then fill in the blank, or what do you think about? It's moving somebody past the shallow to something of a little greater depth. So call. Yada, to see. This is the more traditional view of teaching that you might have run into in scriptures. Uh, the Greek oida would reflect this, knowledge, imparting of knowledge. This is to see and perceive, to know, or come to know, or to cause others to know. This would be the way a rabbi is typically described. Right? Somebody who stands up in front and bestows knowledge. The next one I want to mention is zahar. Zahar is illumination, shining the light. It's lighting up dark things. It's, it, it's dispelling darkness or ignorance. So this is a type of teaching that sees something that's confused and goes, let's look at this, let's, let's discern, let's find the edges on this, let's think more carefully about this. Ra'ah is actually translated two ways. This term means to perceive spiritual realities or the will of God. It describes both a shepherd and a prophet. Ra'ah, to feed a flock. Right, it, is, it is the individual who shelters, who hides, and who leads into good places. Then we have nabah. I love this one. Boiling up. This is inspiration. This term is often applied to the work of a prophet. The idea of words gushing out of a person here is is here. So I don't know if you've ever, as a Christian, been in a situation where you've been in a discussion and suddenly it's like you're speaking and you're not even like, where did that thought come from? And I memorized that this many years ago. And how come that scripture just suddenly came to mind? And, And it's like you're, it's almost like you're standing watching yourself delivering something to someone. That is the bubbling up. It's like the spirit speaking through and past people. This is the word that is often used to describe what a prophet does when a prophet teaches. It is this irresistible gushing of the spirit. All right, well, let's go to the New Testament really quickly. Didasko is the word to teach. Didasko is the word that's used in Matthew chapter 28, and it means to be a master or instructor or a doctor. All right. This is the typical word for rabbi used in the New Testament, the traditional view of standing in front of people, giving instruction. Then there's another one, manthano. Manthano means to learn. It is teaching, but learning. We think of those as two separate things. This is saying it's the same thing. This is not scholastic learning, but dynamic learning. This is the kind of learning you got when a, when a, a girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you. This is the kind of learning you're doing in the household, the kind of teaching that your parents are giving you when they argue and are at each other's throats and you either see them acting godly or you see them acting ungodly. They're training you. They're engaged, they're teaching. They're engaging in Monthano. This is the life experience type of teaching. And all of us have picked this up and all of us are doing this whether we want to or not. Then there's peritithomy. I love peritithomy. Peritithomy means to place beside When Jesus gave parables, he engaged in paratithamy. It's the idea of this. It's like I'm going to take a plate of food and I'm going to set it out there. See if you can eat it. All right, it's setting beside. I'm setting something out for you to take and make use of. This is the quirky person who asks deep or challenging questions. The person who in a break room or at a lunch table will just toss something out or start a little fire and see what happens with everybody. It's setting something out and seeing whether or not people will participate. This person brings forth challenging material that may be over people's heads. The next is Dear menuo. It means to interpret, elucidation. Do you remember when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus? And, and so they've got, they've got these disciples, and they're walking along, and they're, they're just dejected, and they feel terrible because we thought that he was going to be Messiah, and then he died on a cross. And their life is, I mean, it's at an end in a sense. They are just completely dejected. And, and Jesus is suddenly walking with them, but they don't recognize him. And, and so he's like, what are you guys talking about? Well, we we'd hoped that this prophet Jesus was going to be Messiah, but they crucified him. Where have you been? Like, haven't you heard this? And he says, then he began to, the the, he's going to start communicating to them. He's going to start unpacking the Old Testament scriptures. He went, oh, didn't you know? Haven't you read? And then he starts to pull apart. Here's why the Messiah had to suffer and die. He's breaking down the scriptures. Ectithemy means placing out or exposing. It's the idea of, Kind of Hulk Hogan ripping the clothes off in a sense. All right. And, and so this word for teaching means bringing forth hidden ideas or secret ideas. If you've been in a class with somebody, there are some people who will just find a piece of a text and they'll be like, What does this word mean here? Did you ever notice this one? And the whole class goes, Wait, what? And then, you know, and they find those hidden things. That is ectithomy, placing out or drawing out, exposing. Prophetes is one who speaks for, and this is obviously the word from which we get the word prophet. It's somebody speaking on behalf of God and giving a word from the Lord. The last two apply specifically to leadership within the church. Poimen, which means shepherd. Poimen is giving mental and spiritual food, guarding and supporting those cared for, humble, loving, diligent. That should describe an elder in the church, Amen. Uh, episcopas is the last, and that means overseer or protector. This is this is the elder, a word typically used for elder or teacher in the church, but it has this specific idea of guarding the congregation, and that's part of how they teach. Okay, all that said, you're like, thanks, Ben, for the language lesson. Why on earth are we doing this? For this reason, teaching is not merely standing in front of a classroom and speaking. It's not merely stepping up onto a stage and speaking. It's a bigger project, a bigger project that all of us could be involved in on some level or another. At least it can use more participants, maybe some more thoughtful strategy even as to how we accomplish it. Teaching is bigger than one person. Not everyone should presume to be teachers. The scriptures are clear on this. James chapter 3 says, hey, be careful. If you presume to stand up in front of people as a rabbi... If you presume to stand up in front of people and give instruction in the, in the Didasco sense, didaskoi, be careful because you'll be judged more harshly. That being said, you might look over the whole list and you might go, yeah, I'm not going to do that, but I'm listening to all these things and all of that makes me feel uncomfortable. Even those not given to performing the task of instruction on any level still contribute to the teaching enterprise. Amen. The way they act, the way they interact, the way they support the learning venture. A teacher cannot teach without students. You've got to have students in order to teach. Without accountability, without insights, without questions, without forgiveness, without active listening, without application, without follow-up. Speaking of which, another plug, grab one of those half sheets on your way out the door or the way in the door. By the way, they've now got, uh, they've got an outline of the, the message for you. So if you like to take notes on that thing but take them in the aftermath go forth from this place sit down with your family sit down in public sit down with one another talk about some of the things we spoke about this is your chance to teach and particularly can i speak to fathers be the spiritual head in your household be a leader in your household this is an opportunity for your kids to see that christianity is more important to you than just what you do on a sunday morning there's no dad in the house Ladies, take up the helm. Do, do exactly what you need to be doing. Kids, lead your parents if that's necessary. Um, this is a chance for you to express in front of your unsaved household even what you believe and why you believe it. <sighs> well, teaching important but the the term is not just teaching it's not just that we're taking in information or learning we're distributing information and trying to create disciples that way the objective is teaching to obey it has a further end result teaching to obey so let's talk about obedience sacrifice in the old testament was the ultimate it was the biggest deal and and not just not just in hebrew civilization and society But in all of the Mediterranean region, sacrifice was a big deal. You know that people in the time of of what we're seeing in the Old Testament sacrificed their children oftentimes, not in the Scriptures. That was forbidden according to the Scriptures. But outside of that, they sacrificed to Moloch all throughout Canaan. It was a normal enterprise in this region. Now, why? Why would anybody sacrifice their children? Why would anybody sacrifice a lamb or a cow? You might think, well, we do the same thing we got an offering box in the back, and so I'll write a check and we'll throw that in there. That's the same thing as sacrificing. No, it isn't. Sacrificing in the Old Testament was more like taking your retirement and putting it in. It was not simply money given. An animal given was the possibility of food for you and your family for generations. That was a big deal. And so for the Jewish people, when they thought about serving God and worshiping God, it was more important than singing, it was more important than praying. It was more important than almost anything else you could do. It was more important than how you taught your kids or anything. What you sacrificed in the temple, it showed who you were. It let God know, I really believe this. Otherwise, I would not do this. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of, of rams. Now you might hear that and be like, "Well, yeah, obviously, to obey is better than sacrifice." But for the Jew hearing this, it was equivalent to somebody coming into church and going, "Listen, to obey is is better than uh, your song service. To obey means more than lifting your hands in worship. To obey means more than praying." To obey means more than reading your Bible. It is essentially taking the most spiritual thing that was given and saying, you know what's greater than that? Your obedience. Doing what God told you. Oh yeah, I know that. I mean, all of us know that, right? I want you to think about why obedience is greater. Why would I even bother saying that? I mean, clearly God wants me to read my Bible and to pray and to lead my family and to sing and to lift my hands and worship and to, to honor Him. Clearly God wants all those things, so why would we say obedience is greater? For those of you who are parents, imagine you have a child. Clean your room, brush your teeth, make your bed. And the child instead goes, no, and then goes over and proceeds to beat the dog and, uh, and takes the food out of the refrigerator and starts finger painting on the wall and and you, you're seeing all these things transpire and you're going i said brush your teeth make your bed clean your room and the kid goes wait a second and draws a little rainbow and a puppy i love you mom do you go oh thank you ah you really do care or do you go you don't even mean this A good parent would, by the way. Now you're seeing my parenting style. If you say you love me, wouldn't you do what I asked you to do? The Old Testament is rife with these types of teachings. God says things to the people in the Old Testament where he says, like, I'm not listening to your prayers right now. I'm not hearing from you. I hate your sacrifices. the, The smell of it rising up is a sickness in my nostrils. I hate what you're doing. Why? Because they were being disobedient. It didn't matter what else they did. Obedience was the indicator of whether or not they really loved him. Jesus in in the book of Malachi, or God's in the book of Malachi, says, um, hey, look, I'm not hearing your prayers. I'm I'm turning a deaf ear to them. I'm not listening. You know why? Because you guys are not being good to your wives. The wife of your youth that you were supposed to treasure, you're just setting aside. You're not taking care of her. I'm not listening to a thing you say. Does God take this seriously? Obedience. You bet he does the goal of learning must be a changed life. Anytime we're taking in information, it needs to change the way we obey, the way we function. Let me illustrate this by telling you about a construction company. You know what the goal of a construction company is? Build things. Let me tell you about this construction company. In this construction company, every employee is empowered. They get to decide when they are a project manager. And so everyone's made themselves a project manager and they're all creating memos. They're all sending them to one another so that the company policy can be refined and directed. The company's defined by meetings. They have meetings and they have meetings about meetings. And they have time and they'll plan time to have meetings about planning the times where they'll have meetings where they plan meetings. This company is full of professionals and you know that because they use professional business jargon. They say things like core competency. And consumer buy-in, they talk about making hay and scalable corporate values and best practices and leveraging out-of-the-box thinking. They'll tell you they're here to take it to the next level. But there's one problem with our imaginary construction company. They're not building anything. No real projects are happening, and thank goodness for that because not one person in the building knows how to hold a hammer. Does this construction company sound like any other institution you know of? There are churches throughout our world right now that are bloated with self-importance. They have meetings, and they have meetings, and they have meetings. They engage in meaningless, fruitless jargon. They throw out these catchphrases, and they'll use them in their songs, and they use them in the worship service, and nobody has any idea what the word holiness means or righteousness means. Just there. There are a lot of people willing to be managers, not a lot of people willing to carry drywall and swing a hammer. If, we're business, if our business is making disciples, shouldn't we see disciples being made there's a difference between the church that hears and the church that obeys it's the difference between the church that is throwing down fortresses and the church that looks like a giant hamster wheel which are we the difference is obedience whether or not we hear the word and we obey we do what it says amen Let's talk about building a home for God. Have any of you guys ever had an experience where you try to create more space in your house? Uh, so maybe it's when you're first getting married and you're going, okay, we need to, we need to move somebody in. And, you know, I've got to make room for my wife or my husband, so we've got, to, we've got to change some things. Or maybe you've had an instance where most of us who've had kids, you have that instance where it's like, oh, okay, time to create a nursery. And so you, you do a little nesting and you create that space for the baby to come back and, and be in that space. Maybe you've got a parent who's, you know, uh, they're getting old and they need to move in. And so you, you generate some space for that person. We've had some experience with this with foster care. We, you know, as we talked about doing foster care, we decided, hey, we've got to build. And so we got a plan together. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build some space out into the garage. And so I'm like, great. I'm tired of doing projects. Um, let's hire a company that will do this for us. And we went through a number of contractors and nobody was willing to do it. So guess who had to do it? <laughs> this guy. Um, here's the thing. It cost us a lot. We had, you know, we had a plan. cost us a lot. There was time and effort and energy involved. I had to ask for help. There were a number of things. I just wasn't comfortable doing myself. And so we had to bring people in on the project. And so I had fathers and brother-in-laws and everything who came over and helped. But the idea was we need to make space. And we did. And we, we did it again as we put in a bathroom downstairs. We created the possibility for more people. Do you know what does that for God. Look at John chapter 14. Flip your Bibles open to John chapter 14. Do you know how you make space for God in your life? Here's this interesting interchange that Jesus has with his disciples where he talks about dwelling together with the people who know him. This is a really cool passage. John chapter 14, 18 through 24. Jesus says, John 18, or I'm sorry, John 14, 18 through 24. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments, underline this, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? In other words, how can you possibly speak only to us and not the people anymore? Jesus, what's going on? And Jesus, true to form, does not answer his question directly. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, Underline this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Obedience. And my Father will love him. And we, my Father and I, will come to him and make our abode that is house. Make our house with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Do you want God dwelling with you and in you? Do you know how you get it done? Oh Obeying. Obedience. How do you get God to dwell within you? Obedience. Let's say it together. <laughs> Obedience. I'm losing them. All right. Here's the deal. Jesus showed up. There was a plan to follow. There was a cost to pay. There are sacrifices that had to be made. We have to ask for help. That's his plan of salvation for, from him for us. And then guess what we get to do? Put together a plan and pay the cost, and sacrifice, and ask for help from others. We're doing the same thing and making a place for him in our lives. Obedience is a big deal. Obedience shows whether or not you're legit, whether you're too legit to quit. (laughs) Turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to hang out at Luke chapter 6 for a little bit. How do you know which Christians you should really be listening to and which Christians you should not be listening to? How do you distinguish whose word holds weight in the church? Let me tell you. How do you know you've taught somebody to obey? How do you know whether or not you yourselves are being obedient? Jesus gave us a measure. Uh, Jesus was walking with his disciples at one stage of the game, and, and as they're walking along, Jesus goes over to a fig tree, and he starts sifting through this fig tree. It's not even fig season. He's sifting through a fig tree, and he steps back away from it, having not found any fruit, and he goes, he curses the tree. May you never bear fruit again. And then his disciples are like, whoa. And they just wander on their way, and as they're coming back in that direction, the disciples are like, Whoa, that's the tree you cursed. It's it's dead down to the roots. Now, what's the deal here? Is Jesus like a captain planet villain? Does he just hate trees? What's he doing? He's giving us an elaborate teaching about bearing fruit. Here's how you tell whether or not a Christian is legit. Does their life bear fruit? Does their life bear fruit? Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. Here's what Jesus said. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Here's Jesus' diagnosis of human beings. Do you want to see what is inside a person? Watch for what spills out. Do you want to know what a person's heart is filled up with? Watch what happens with their lives. See what kind of fruit is coming from them. The fruit of the Spirit is laid out in Galatians chapter 5 for us. Galatians 5 to make very clear what it is that we should be seeing in the life of every believer. And by the way, it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit of the Spirit, singular. In other words, you don't get to pick and choose from this list which ones you want. This, all of this, must be present in your life if you are obedient to God. Let's listen to these things. And again, guys, look at the Word. Let the Word be the mirror for you. Examine yourself really quickly. Just listen to these one at a time. And ask yourself, is this me? Am I bearing this fruit? Does my life bear this fruit? Love. Do people receive you as love? Do you come across as loving to everybody you encounter? Joy. Are you a joyous person or would that be difficult as a description of you? Do you have this inner anticipation, this bubbling up, this deep-rooted spiritual satisfaction? Is that in you? Is that what people see in you? What about peace? Are you a peaceful person? Or are you defined by conflict and anxiety and worry, fear? What about patience? How patient are you? Our Father, our God, is described as long suffering. Is that you? Or do you snap? Not like that. The other kind. You know, where you blow up on people. What about kindness and goodness? You know, that stuff they taught us in preschool and Sunday school? Kindness and goodness, are you still struggling to do that? Like after all these years, is that still hard for you? What about faithfulness? Do people perceive you as trustworthy, as loyal? Or gentleness, meekness? Gentleness is a great Christian word. Meekness is a great Christian word. It's one that a lot of Christians misunderstand. Meekness is not weakness. They're not the same thing. Any you guys remember what uh, the word meek means? High schoolers? Yes. Power under control. And what is the best illustration of this? Thank you, guys. War horse. I'm so proud of you. You want to see something meek? Look at a war horse. Do you know what a war horse is? That's an animal that bites off human faces. That's an animal that can kick somebody's chest in or stomp a person to death. That is meek. What? Meekness means power under control. It's not that you're powerless. It's not that you're weak. You're immensely strong. A warhorse could kill most any warrior that sits on top of it. But it is power under control. And that's the way we are to be as disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. Self-control. Are you ruled by your passions still? Or are you a person who tells the body its place and what it will do? Fruit of the Spirit. How obedient are we being? obedience is the metric of of whether or not we're actually following christ do you see in your life the fruit of the spirit all of them are those things present and are they growing and increasing is your yield better year by year despite the circumstances guys if you were a christian who's been a christian for a decade and you still have the same anger issues you had 10 years ago there's a problem obedience does more than just show whether or not we're legit obedience creates security Would you define our world as secure right now? Ruled by fear, ruled by insecurity, dominated by uncertainty. And it's people realizing that we're not God and we're not in control like we thought we were in control. Everything seems out of hand. Luke 6, verse 46 through 49. Hope you're still there. Luke 6, 46 through 49. Jesus says this Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Obedience. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them, underline that, obedience. I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building his house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house, it couldn't, they could not shake it because it had been well built. Some of you experienced that in life. I mean, life throws garbage at you and the torrent hits and everything seems to be falling apart from the outside, but you're looking down and you're going, I am secure because I'm still standing on my Christ. Verse 49, But the one who has heard and has not acted, notice, this person heard, this person received the teaching, but did not act, is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. The torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Obedience creates security. We have a foundation that does not perish and will not go away. It is a foundation that is eternal. Obedience removes self-condemnation. I've done a lot of counseling over the years. And uh here, here's here's something I've noted. It's a, it, this is a very basic phrase, but I use this in counseling a lot. There is nothing that feels so good as doing what's right. There's nothing that feels so good as doing what's right. And, and it's not that it's easy to do. It's not that it gets rid of all our problems. But when I'm doing what's right, I can feel okay about myself. And I can feel like I at least, even if the world is out of control, even if other people are treating me harshly, I at least am doing what's right. Obedience. First John chapter 3, 21-25. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. There's a good synopsis of obedience. Loving God, loving each other. Just as He has commanded us, the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He, that is God, in Him, that is man. We know by this that He abides or makes His home in us by the Spirit whom He's given us. To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience shows whether or not we're legit. Obedience creates security. Obedience removes condemnation. Obedience builds a home for God. Obedience is a big deal, isn't it? Amen? Let's, uh, let's look at discovering our own disobedience. Um, in putting together this sermon, I was considering just, you know, hey, maybe I should just stick it out right here and just stop here. But here's the deal. Most of us walk away from this and we're like, yep, obedience is a big deal. Yep, I agree. And we have not reflected on how we are not obeying. So let's end in a negative. Yay! (laughs) Discovering disobedience. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Our hunt in the church is so often for the disobedience of others. It's so much easier to see problems that other people have, it's so much more difficult to see my own problems. As Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things he says, he says, hey, look, why is it you're trying to remove that speck in your brother's eye when all the while there's this plank sticking out of your own eye? Why, why are you trying to get that dust out when there's a telephone pole jammed in your eye? And he's giving us kind of this good hyperbolic understanding of who we are and the way we act and function. It's very easy to point fingers and try to figure out what everybody else's problem. It gets really difficult to be blind or not to be blind when it comes to ourselves. Uh, Let me ask you a question. How are you failing in regard to God's standard? How are you being disobedient? I want you to seriously think for just a moment. Just think, identify it, concrete. What is it you're doing that's disobedient? If that took you more than a few seconds, you're in trouble. Why? Because the more you know God, the more you realize how far you are from God's standard. Any of us who thinks we've arrived, we're not in a good place. Um, let, me, let me just lay out the Apostle Paul to you. Can we all agree that the Apostle Paul was a better Christian than every one of us is? Can we agree with that? Will you, does anybody object to that? Anybody want to say that they're better than the Apostle Paul? All right, do you, remember, do you realize what the Apostle Paul said about himself? He called himself the chief of all sinners. I, I am a, the foremost sinner. I sin the most. I am the most guilty before God. Do you think he was just like being like a you know, junior high girl at the dance? Like, nobody thinks I'm pretty. Is that what he was doing there? I don't think so. I think Paul knew God better than I know God. I think Paul knows God better than you know God. And I think as Paul got to know God deeper and deeper and more and more, the more he looked at himself and went, I'm not matching up. And, and the, the further I go, the further I realize I'm away. Matthew 21 verse 28 through 32. But do you think or but what do you think this is Jesus speaking? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, "Son, go to work today in the vineyard." And he answered, "I will not." Great kid. There you go teenagers. There's your I will not. But listen to this. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. The man came to the or the man came to the second son and said the same thing and he answered, "I will, sir." But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They, those who were listening to him, said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward as so to believe him. Guys, what do tax collectors and prostitutes know that you and I don't? Amen. Nobody has to go tell a prostitute that she's done something wrong. She knows. Nobody has to go tell the guy who is thieving and cheating that he's not right with God. He knows. This is something that the drunks know, that the prostitutes know, that those who've been abusing and are they they, they, they know they're doing something wrong. Christians, we've got to keep examining ourselves. We are not perfect yet, amen? Yeah. Discover your disobedience. We can disobey in two ways. We can disobey in what we do, and we can disobey in what we don't do. Let me, let me just run through a litany of disobeying in what we do very quickly, okay? Mark yourself here. Examine yourself. How are you doing at controlling your tongue? Are you a gossip? <laughs> no, I give prayer requests. I'm not, I'm not gossiping. Are you starting fires with your words, or are you a peacemaker? Are you the person who stands in between and says, you know, I think what she might have been thinking was this. Or it could be that we don't have what what is behind this. Let's go talk to that person. Are you making allowances for sexual sin in your life, in your mind, in your eyes, in your actions? Have you made a provision for lust of the flesh? Are you harboring resentment? Do you hate somebody right now? Is there anyone in your life that you hate and despise? If you're actively hating somebody right now, you're disobeying God. That's a disobedience. Here's what Jesus said. Love your neighbors and love your... That's that's everybody. You don't get to pick and choose out of that and go, well, maybe there's a third category. The people that God wants me to hate. No. Are you unforgiving? Finish Finish this prayer for me. Forgive us our trespasses as we... Do you realize that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, God, forgive me all of my sins only insofar as I forgive other people. That's what that says. If you're holding on forgiveness, you're basically going, and God, I want you to treat me in the same manner. You hold my sins against me. How are we doing without bursts of anger? Do you blow up? Do you lose your cool? Do you freak out on people? Ben, that's just the way I am no that's just the way satan wants you to be you are not that you are redeemed you have been crucified with christ you are a new creature god is remaking you sanctifying you causing you to be holy every day every year you should be getting better and better and better and better and the sinful habits and behaviors should be diminishing and diminishing and diminishing to where the people around you look at you and say that is new that's amazing do you entertain anxiety? Do you make a place for worry and fear in your heart? But Ben, anxiety is not sin. Yes, it is. But 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 no. But I, I naturally feel this way. Everybody who engages in sin can say that. I naturally desire to do this, but I have a disorder. I get that. Look, I, I believe me. I understand. Anxiety disorders are real and they exist and they're functional. So are sexual disorders. We don't say to people, oh wait, you really want to do this? You have a proclivity to this? Well then go ahead. Do whatever you want. Sin means we have to wage war. Even if it's every day for the rest of our life, we have to wage a war in the mind to say no. What you're saying, anxiety, worry, fear, that is not of God. This is not who God made. This is not God's truth. I'm interposing a different truth over this and I reject this. Are you spiritually arrogant? Oh, that one's hard to assess. You remember when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Do you know what he means by that? Philip Yancey says, if you want to understand that, you have to go to the opposite. What would it mean to be rich in spirit? Well, that's what the Pharisees are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus loves the person who's constantly coming to him going, I'm not ready yet. Oh, man, this needs worked on. There's a danger in us going, I'm a finished product. Look at this. I'm done, God. Are you neglecting the fellowship of believers? Well, again, good job, guys. You're here this morning, high fives all around. You're not neglecting the fellowship of believers. Are you actually spending time with the body of Christ? Are you spending time with each other? That's part of God's plan for you. Do you cause your weaker brother or sister to stumble? Are you being careful about not doing that? Do you hoard wealth? Are you ruled by envy? I mean, there's a lot of ways we can go wrong, amen? Mark the things that are your proclivities to disobedience and then hand them out to God. Lord, work on this. I need your help. Ephesians 5, 10, and 11. Trying to, learn what is, or trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Here's the way I'm failing you, God. James chapter 4, verse 17. Let's talk about disobeying and what we do. We'll make it very brief, and then we'll wrap up. Okay? James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is perhaps the more frightening aspect of obedience, because while I will trot out a list of disobedience, I'm not even going to attempt to trot out a list of ways to be obedient to God. Do you know why? Because there's so much we could be doing and should be doing. I'm not even going to try to get a list together on that. So how do we know? How do we know what our do's are, not just what our do nots are? How can we assess and understand that? God has put together a plan. 66 books written by over 40 authors over a period of more than 1,600 years that contain not a list of rules. He could have done that, couldn't he? He could have just put together a checklist. Here are the 2,343 things you need to do every day. And you just go through them every day. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't do that. Here's what he gave us. He gave us poetry and history. He gave us lives of people who failed terribly and people who succeeded and did what was right. People like us. He gave us an understanding of those people. He gave us letters written by amazing people. He gave us the work of His own Son. And then He gives us the Holy Spirit to work in and through us and tell us the right thing to do. You know what the Holy Spirit does, right? Teaches us to be holy, to be separate, set apart, to lead and to direct. He also gives us a community of believers. Believers who will love us, believers whom we love, Believers who will tax us unendingly and challenge us just like a family does. Who will love us even when we don't deserve it. Whom we have to love even when they don't deserve it. It's a refining process. It's it's a training process right here. God gave us a world in which we can be faithful or we can be disobedient. This was God's plan for discipleship. A plan that you and I are part of. Is obedience important? We cannot be disciples without it. Let's go to our Master in prayer. Lord, teach us to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, the whole of who we are. God, I pray we would be obedient in every respect, that you would look on us and you would see kids who, regardless of what we've said in the past, go out and work in the field. Master, I pray that we make a home In ourselves, we create space for You by our obedience. That, Father, we see the fruit of the Spirit demonstrating that we have been obedient. Lord, I pray that in this place, these people will all be convicted to be Your disciples. And that we would do that through our obedience and teaching obedience. We love You, Lord God. We praise You for loving we unworthy sinners. In Your name we pray. Amen.